This is the STEM Read Podcast. Welcome to the STEM Read Podcast. In each episode, we interview an expert and an author to explore the connections between stories and STEM. I'm your host, Jillian King-Cargyle, a writer, book lover, and the director of NIU STEM Read. And I'm Dr. Kristen Brennison, otherwise known as Hot Pink Tech. I'm an educator and engineer and the director of professional development for NIU STEAM. Today on the STEM Read podcast, we're talking about doodlers and daydreamers. We're going to explore visual literacy with Dr. Rhonda Robinson and then take a look at picture books with author and illustrator Tom Lichtenheld. Rhonda is a distinguished teaching professor emeritus in the College of Education's Department of Educational Technology, Research and Assessment, where she has taught courses in technology integration, visual literacy, and educational technology research. Tom is the creator of amazing books like Claudette and Bridget's Beret. He's also the illustrator of Goodnight, Goodnight Construction Site, I Wish You More, Duck Rabbit, and other great picture books. He's also a super wonderful guy who let us record in his studio where the magic happens. (laughs) You can check out our show notes to see some of the images from his studio and pictures of the books he's referencing. So Kristen, I know that you and I have a lot of thoughts about visual literacy and literacy in general. My background, as I said, is in writing and filmmaking, and your background is in engineering and photography. So, So we've got a lot of thoughts on this topic. Oh, we always have a lot of thoughts, and we like to debate our thoughts quite often. So we teach a digital storytelling workshop where we teach people how to create stories and put them into digital media. Kristen likes to say something that always makes me mad. I think she says it just to piss me off. Of course I do. Why else would I say it? (laughs) So, So I talk about writing and the writing process and how no matter what the medium, you always need to start with a good story with strong words and you need to make sure you're communicating the right words. And then Kristen says, well, you can add media and pictures And then maybe you don't need the words at all. And I say, shut up, Kristen. (laughs) Of course you need the words. So we go back and forth on this. The pictures are the words (laughs) in my head. Ah. (laughs) When I started writing, I wasn't intending to write picture books. I write a lot of young adult things and adult things. In the course of this program, we were working with the DuPage Children's Museum and Argonne National Lab. Argonne said, we've got this really great storm guy. You need to have a storm book. You know, I looked and looked for different storm books, and they're just, none of them were quite right. And so I said, well, I have an MFA. I've read children's books. I can write a children's book. And it can become a picture book, and it'll be no big whoop. And, um... It's actually really hard. (laughs) It's really hard to write a thousand-word picture book. You have to have the right words in exactly the right way for the right audience. And you also have to think about how the words and the pictures come together. And that was really interesting for me because I, you know, being a writer um, and a bit of a narcissist, I'm like, my words are amazing. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad you can finally admit that. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, so I'm like, these words are the best words. Um, And then I was working with my illustrator, Kevin Krull, and I had to let things go. It was a good exercise in learning how to how to edit and how to just not be so in love with your own words. So I had this um, description of one of the characters. Her little lab coat was wet and her corn silk hair was blowing out of her serious scientist ponytail, but Bear still thought Sadie looked like a doll who knew what to do. I just, serious scientist ponytail, I was like, yeah, alliteration, it's so visual. And then my illustrator, Kevin, was like, like, here you go. And it was all there. You know, you saw the scientist style. You didn't need my clever little words and I could cut them. And once I got comfortable with that idea, it was very freeing to just X out large portions of my manuscript and get it down and down and down to that essential, the essential words. Eventually, we're going to get you doing wordless picture books. No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to. You can't make me. <laughs> So I don't know. I started out thinking of it as words versus pictures. And really what it is, it's it's words and pictures and how they work together. Yes. And that's what we're going to be exploring today on the STEM Read Podcast. Our first guest is Dr. Rhonda Robinson, who specializes in visual literacy as it applies to teaching and learning. 
So literacy is probably a term we're all familiar with, but describe a little bit. So what is visual literacy? If you base it on the word literacy, which is an ability to read and write, it becomes the ability to read and write visually, which is fairly simplistic. However, it really says you'll be able to understand a visual. You'll be able to understand the culture that it comes from, the way it was designed, how it was created, essentially all of the things that go into that visual. And sometimes the definition stops there. I think way more importantly, the definition I've always used is the ability to both read and write, so create. And that's where we sometimes get people less interested in using that terminology because not everyone can create, quote unquote. And I think, no, everyone can create a communication visually. And in schools, particularly, everybody can find images, everybody can create images, everybody can make a comic book in three minutes, you know, with the, with the software available. So the ability not just to do that, but to make it a communication that others can appreciate, not just make that picture, but make that picture in a way that people go, wow, that really says it to me. That's the literacy I'm interested in helping foster. Since visual is is part of it, there seems to be a misconception that visual literacy, since it relies on visual principles and art elements, that it's really only for the art field. Is it specific to the fine arts or does it cut across other areas and other disciplines? That's a common misperception, I believe. The person, John Debs, who initiated the term, came up with it, I guess, in about 69, was an educator, a psychologist, a photographer. He wasn't an artist in the sense that some people think of visual literacy being about art. I think it's just gotten a bad rap in that regard. (laughs) But it certainly enhances learning. The idea of becoming more visually literate would enhance your ability to read and write visually in any topic matter in any area. More recently, in the last, say, 20 years, people have concentrated a great deal on scientific illustration, on charts and maps and graphs, and the way they can fool us or misinterpret, you know, we can be misinterpreted, you know, all kinds of visuals, not just pictorial images, not just something that's been painted, certainly. Of course, people who study art, study the elements of design, look at paintings and learn the same language that me may care for people to learn to talk about an illustration in a picture book. But it's not to the same depth that we're going to use that. That's because we're not going to ask people to paint like Vermeer. We're going to ask them to understand the picture right. and, and know the elements that have gone into it. So why is that so important for today? Why is this a skill that we want our students to learn and to foster? We live in a world that over the last 40 years, continually you read a sentence that says, in this very visual world, well, <laughs> Bring it to 2018. In this very, very visual world, boy, if we don't help people, we will hinder their ability to continue learning in the depth that we need for them to to be critical thinkers, to analyze something and really look at the intention, look at what they're really saying, ask themselves whether or not this is actually true. Is this a fake photo or is this a real photo? Has this been manipulated or not? All of those things are so much more important today than they were 10 years ago that you kind of go, give me a reason you wouldn't think this is important. You know, unfortunately, we have fake news now. (laughs) We have lots of ways of putting heads on different bodies and making models look like they weigh 100 pounds and all kinds of things where we need our learners to understand that that's what's happening. We need them to be able to critically analyze something and make their own decision about how they feel about that, what they think they should do about it, how they should react to it. And they only do that by practicing. So when you say, why should we work on visual literacy? It increases critical thinking skills. It increases communication skills. Well, what are two of the things that every business person I've ever seen interviewed in a business magazine says people need to have? Communication skills and critical thinking skills and some flexibility. Okay, well, let's work on those three skills. It's part of the common core. It's part of all the standards that we see across the nation in science and in literacy and in social studies. It's a part of it, critical thinking, critical analysis. So to me, it's perfect. Well, and even in the next-gen science standards, you're asking students to create visual models to demonstrate understanding. So how do you take science concepts and convert that into a visual representation of that concept? Correct. 
It's a I, perfect example. I was thinking about one of the activities we, when you and I taught visual literacy together, and we did the what's with that ad. Yes. Activity. Oh my gosh, that was great. So we would find these crazy advertising images that you would see in a magazine, and we'd post them and have the learners do a quick scan and then dissect it. Oh, they loved it. And it was so important because in the few minutes that you have, let's say you're paging through a website or paging through a paper magazine, doesn't matter. You're looking at something fairly quickly and going on to the next page. And that still is retained in your memory without your questioning whether or not it was quote unquote real. More recently, I did one with a group of adults, gave them an opportunity to pick 10 pictures, maybe not photographs they've taken, just anything that help us understand who they are. So when you said to describe, you know, who, who I am, who I are. could have given You're you like, ten I pictures. Could have given you the picture, yeah, right? And so <laughs> wouldn't uh, make for a great podcast. Yeah, no. but first there's this one. Here's a picture of and this. This one. <laughs> See here? Yeah, I'll describe that in four words or less. Anyway, but they, but students in the group that I was with just loved doing that. No one had ever asked them to do it. Boy, were they revealing and way better than standing up in any group, adults or children, and saying, you know, tell us about yourself, and saying, well. I like dogs. You know, people are very reticent to talk about themselves. Right. But it just got everybody's attention on selection, which is one of the skills in visual literacy. Right. Select the correct picture, not just any picture. When I think the first introduction to visual literacy I had from taking your class, we all walked in, we sat down, and you were explaining the importance of visual literacy. And you said, okay, everybody shut your eyes, and I'm, I'm going to say a word and picture it. Oh, yes. And we all shut our eyes, and you just said, table. And then we had to describe what it was we saw. And some people had data tables. Some people had their dining room tables. So it was the first thing that got us thinking about how words and pictures have different relations and different meanings to different people. Correct. The precision isn't what we think it is with a word. Mm -hmm. And that's, it's always been true. And we know through how much we all have enjoyed storybooks our whole life, picture books, do a different job with that as well. So if you said, let's find a book that has a a picture of a a table in it, how many different tables would we find if we each had a different book? Yeah, Mm -hmm. same kind of thing. So what are some of the things you do with picture books? You know, I have learned so much from the students I've had in my classes, most of whom have been teachers, and they've come up with some very fun ideas. One of the first times was with the picture book, The Napping House. She said it's got so much texture in it. She would just start, first read it, just read it just read the book and then go back and look at it and analyze it. She said, don't analyze it from the first time, but that's a good a good rule. But to start looking at who's in the picture, what's going on, what action is happening. Let's turn the page. What's changed? What's going on in this picture is one of my favorite questions. I worked with a group of educators um, the last couple of summers through um, some museum projects in, in Chicago, and we would do that with all kinds of visual images, some that they'd taken, some that were on the wall in museums, some that were in their books that they used in their classrooms. A lot of them were Uh, Spanish, English teachers. And so we would say, what's in this picture? What is here? And they would look and then they'd look again and then they'd look again and they go, oh, I never saw that. I never noticed that. Well, that's different than this. And then it starts a conversation about why I think it's this. What do you think? Why did they do it that way? So just examining very close ways, I think is one of my favorite things to do. I really encourage parents using picture books with their kids after the story is familiar to do that kind of an exercise. What do we see on this page? What's happening here? And then the follow-up question, of course, is how do you know that? Oh, the dog isn't happy. Really? Why do you think the dog isn't happy? What's going on here that makes you think that? Well, look at his face. Well, what's wrong with his face? The more time you spend on each image as a parent working with kids, the more, if you want to use the word critically analytic, but with a little child, the more observant they will become. And I believe that's a key to building that foundation for visual literacy. One of my fellow, other fellow students did a whole project on uh, using picture books with middle school age kids to teach science. And so she would have them look for science principles and uh, science operations within storybooks. And since then, we've had a lot of people using picture books on a particular topic, fiction or nonfiction, to say, this is another way of getting at the students with whom I work. And to me, that whole differentiation piece is so vital. And if you've got um, second language learners or people that are having difficulty reading for a variety of reasons, to have a picture book as an as one of the things they're learning through gives them an entree to the learning environment that is very important to them. Jillian, when I first read The Toy in the Tide Pool, your book, 
you know, you read the story, look at the pictures, but I think it wasn't until I heard you talk about the illustrations that I realized there was that whole secondary story of the guy sunbathing in the back. Right. Yeah. I love it when illustrators do that. They put in a secondary story, another layer that, you know, that you maybe don't see on the first go round. And then or even the, the more second. you read it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Until somebody draws it to your attention. You're right. like, oh, yeah. Yeah. My illustrator yeah. is Kevin Krull, and he had a guy in the background that he's on the beach at the beginning and then he's kind of stretching in another spread and then he's taking a nap and at the end he's completely sunburned because he spent the whole day sleeping on the beach (laughs) and it has nothing to do with the story but it's just this great moment that he's that he's added to the story i love it i love it i think tom does some of that too maybe absolutely yeah Yeah. i love that one of my favorite books to use with people talking about visual literacy is emergency and i told him that i was bringing that today to talk about and he said yeah that's a pretty complex group of pictures that might be too hard to talk about and I said no that's the reason it's a great example because there's so much going on in every page and it would take a long time but there are many books like that and you just think well what a rich resource for a lot of age kids not just the younger kids that enjoy picture books because they don't read well what are some of your other favorites I brought a, I brought a pile over did there. Did you bring a pile? Yeah, I did. I did. Okay, it's just a representative sample of my personal collection. And the napping house is here and um, emergency. Uh, one of our family's favorite books is illustrated like very cartoon-like, and it's called The Friends of Emily Culpepper. And Emily turns out to be kind of a witch, oh. and she brings her her friends like the postman and the milkman into her home, and then she makes them very small and puts them in little jars and keeps them as p- friends oh. to play with. It's <laughs> terrifyingly it's, amazing. <laughs> yes, it was. And it's one of those books where you go, is this too scary for my four-year-old yeah. or whatever, or, or, or not? Turned out that we, we all just really loved it. Yeah. How, um, how involved is this going to be? You know, or, yeah. Are we going to talk about this a little bit? Or like yeah. Yeah. next gonna, week, am I going to have you in my bed? Is this therapy that I'm looking at That's when right. you're 25? Yeah. Should I really say that you can't shrink people and put them in jars and keep them? But you know. And the last line of the book, because she would let them out to play, and then, then they would hide, and then she would try to find them. And the last line of the book is, and the hunt was so exciting. So whenever we lose something at our house, we say, oh, the hunt is so exciting. That's awesome. Anyway, The Wretched Stone by Chris Van Alsberg is one of my favorites mm. to do this with. Uh, Graham Bass's work, especially Animalia, is one of my favorites. William Joyce, we just love. The Mischievians is one, but there are lots of them. And then Chris Van Alsberg's Harris Burdick, which I think is a fabulous piece. We've used that with some yeah. of our prompts and so on, so I think so. And then um, a book that not everybody has seen is Radioactive. Um, a book about Marie Curie, and um, it is a completely illustrated book. It's mostly pictures. It's a wonderful, mm-hmm. wonderful book. It's The text is very meaningful. It's not a picture book in that regard, but the pictures supplement what's being talked about amazingly. And I think for young girls especially, but girls and boys who are thinking about science, since finally we are doing that so much more than we were, this is a really awesome like middle school level book to me. I've had my adult friends read this in my book group and everybody was just astonished at it. Persepolis we've used in class oh, yeah. and you know, all of that series. When we've used a lot of wordless picture books too. Yes, yes. And even with the Ben Allsberg book, giving students an image and having them each write their own story right. based on it. And I right. know, Jillian, you do that with photographs in some of your writing classes. And then you know, we've done that in the reverse, right. giving them text and right. having them draw their own images right. to right. build those skills. Right. One of the other activities I started doing a long time ago, which I've had lots of success with kids with, is looking at various illustrators' versions of a familiar story. Every fairy tale has been re-illustrated a jillion times, and now there's even really modern versions and online versions. And so you've got a plethora of choices. The first one I ever did it with was Cinderella. And, you know, you could say, what's the difference between this Cinderella gown and this Cinderella gown? What does the artist do? How do you feel about each one? What do you see in it? I really believe that the encoding part, if we want to use that formal term, but the creating is very important. And what I said earlier about having kids be offered an assignment that allows them to create visually 
so important. And they don't, I mean, after about third grade, I have a feeling a lot of kids in a lot of places don't get much opportunity, the standards and the tests and, you know, all the pressures on teachers. They just don't take that time. So when we talk a little bit about what about parents, what could they be doing? They could be giving their kids more tools and more time and more encouragement to do some creation, to create a, commun- a communication, to create a message that makes sense to them about almost anything. Why are you so mad at me right now? You know, whatever. <laughs> and whether it's crayons or the computer, I don't, whatever. I just think that part of it gets left out. We do more and more about literacy being being able to read. And in writing, we say, no, they must be clear writers. But somehow when we get to visuals, we forget that that is also a skill that needs to be practiced. Well, I think you and I were talking earlier about that idea that so many of us don't see ourselves as artists. Oh, yeah. So you put a crayon in somebody's hand and like, well, what do you want me to do with this? Yeah. I, I don't draw. I'm yeah. not an art person. It's not about being a good artist. It's right. about learning how to communicate through that visual right. language. Right. And I think coming back to that thing about art, if we have students do those kinds of things within the unit that we're working on, whatever the topic might be, rather than saying, oh, look, Kristen did a really lovely drawing, you know, using any terminology like that, to just say instead, well, she met what we were trying to do. See here, she has a dragon and a person and the background all in the same picture. She's done a very nice job of making that combination. No qualifying about it's better than or worse than or perfect or not or whatever. I think making sure that we say you've done what we asked you to do, which was locate a picture and defend why it's the best picture to use or draw a picture and have it include the things that we've said it should include. You've done as well as somebody who did it twice as good as you did in the sense of art. If we just stop taking that onus off of art having to be artistic and wonderful we probably would make some headway in that. But I agree with you. Most of us say, oh, I can't draw. Stay away from me. Mm-hmm. This isn't going to be about art, as I've heard a lot of times. <laughs> don't make me get I don't. Paint. Yeah, I don't have to do anything <laughs> with drawing, right? And you go, well, yeah. You can't. But now crayons and coloring books and colored pencils. Holy Jesus. <laughs> Adult coloring popular. books. Yeah. Adult coloring books. How many oh, yeah. do we all own? So it's like, wow, okay, you can still color. You can do it online with your finger. It just cracks me up. We can all still paint. Kevin Kroll and I talk about this, you know, and when we're when we're talking to kids at schools, they, they're like, well, how did you get to be an illustrator? And he's like, everybody draws when they're a child. I just never stopped. Which is the problem, I think, really. And mm-hmm. It's too bad. That's why I'm excited about a new trend that I'm starting to see more about this idea of sketchnoting. Um, Sylvia Duckworth is one that yeah. you see a lot of her stuff, and it's the idea of taking notes and organizing your thoughts through sketches. And they're having kids um, and adults, uh, instead of taking regular notes or writing a summary, they sketch it out. They, they draw, they do little notes, and you've got, you've got these beautiful messes of ideas but it's the way, it's another way to communicate what you know and organize your thoughts. See, and I wouldn't like that because I like all the words. Yeah. Right. When <laughs> I, I want to write it We're all. still friends. And we can and get yeah. along. <laughs> and, yet, and yet we're still there. <laughs> I want to just get in a plug. You might cut later, but I want to talk about the Visual Literacy Association for one second. Yes. I'm a long, long, long time member, and our conference is every year. And this coming fall, 2018, early November, it's in Chicago. And I hope that a lot of educators and some parents even would like to come and hear what we're doing and see our expertise and learn more about all of this stuff in a pretty amazing location with a free visit to the Art Institute and a whole lot of other things going on. And there are several others, of course, media education and ISTE and people like the National Gallery of Art and places that all kinds of museums are doing a lot to help promote visual literacy for their clientele and for teachers. And several of the small museums in Chicago, along with the Art Institute, are doing a great deal to try and encourage teachers to integrate visual literacy skills. So I think we're making a lot of headway. It's not done, but we're getting there. You just heard our interview with Dr. Rhonda Robinson, visual literacy specialist. Up next is author and illustrator Tom Lichtenheld. Visual literacy is not just for artists. We think a lot about how we learn to read and write, but perhaps not as much about how we understand and create images. To be successful in this visual world, students need to learn how to see and build their visual literacy skills, not just learning how to read images, but also how to create and communicate through visuals. And picture books have always been such a great way to get kids excited about visuals and to get them thinking in ways that they're encoding and decoding these pictures. 
We're so excited to have Tom Lichtenheld on our show, and he was so gracious to let us record in his studio. We got to take a peek at all the things that he was working on and see his little post-it notes to himself and really get a sense of what he is like as a creator. Up next is our interview with Tom Lichtenheld. We're really interested in origin stories and why people do what they do. So can you tell us a little bit about how you were as a student, what you were interested in when you were young? Sure. Um, To answer the first part of your question, terrible. I was a terrible (laughs) student. I was not interested or good at anything except art. So that's what I focused on to the detriment of all of my other grades. I'll give you an example of what a poor student I was in high school. I could not get accepted at a state university. My grades were so bad. I went to Rock Valley College in Rockford, which turned out to be the best academic experience of my life. It was fabulous. Uh, It was just right for me. You know, I, I may have been immature or not ready for real college or for whatever reason, but that's where I went. And then I went to the University of Wisconsin in Madison and studied art. And I think I was re- more prepared at that point. But I was a terrible student. And it was a different time. You know, it was the late 50s and early 60s when they didn't know what to do with a kid who had artistic talent. I grew up in Rockford, Illinois, which was a factory town. In Rockford, you were either college material or you went to work in the factory. And I was obviously artistically talented, but in the system I was in at that time in the world, it didn't have marketable value. You know, that's when art was, that's cute, Tommy, now where are you going to work? But I was determined to make a living at it, and I I found my own way. I know now that, you know, kids like me would have been channeled, and that talent would have would have been appreciated. But there were just enough things that were thrown in my path or that I found that let me know that I could do this. My parents had a, had a friend who was an artist. Just meeting that one person who had a studio and made her living with a paintbrush in her hand was enough for me to know that this is possible. When I was in third grade my, in the summer, my mom enrolled me in a class called Creative Dramatics, which was basically a bunch of kids getting together in a school classroom and making up stories and acting them out. That told me that my imagination had some academic value because it was in a classroom. So it must have some academic value. So it was just enough little things like that that kept me reaching and looking for the next toehold to do this. And then there were some some books that influenced me. They weren't school books. They weren't even necessarily books that I was supposed to see. My parents had a book (laughs) called The Lonely Ones. And it's a little chapbook by William Steig long before he was famous. And it's just a bunch of bizarre little black and white drawings with almost disconnected captions. And um, I think this was probably around the time that psychoanalysis was getting popular. You know, he was studying odd, almost deviant personalities and making drawings of these characters. But I would just study this little book <laughs> intently because I, I, it, it spoke to me because it was visual and it was odd. My parents also had a book of cartoons by Charles Adams. And this is Charles Adams who ended up doing The Adams Family. Not only are his cartoons kind of macabre and dark, but many of them are purely visual with no words. And there's one cartoon in particular that I was just fixated on. It's a famous cartoon of a skier going down a hill. And he's past a tree, but his, ski, his two ski tracks go around the tree, the opposite sides of the tree, in a way that's physically impossible. And then there's another skier, which is a really important element, looking back, puzzled. For one thing, the drawing is so realistic that it almost looked like it really happened. But to a little kid who's visually oriented, that was just fascinating to me. So that book of of cartoons by Charles Adams, my parents just happened to have sitting around, is one of the few things that spoke to me much more than Dick and Jane did. And then the first book my mom read to me was a picture book called Pagu, and it's about a a little hermit crab. But the interesting thing about this book, as I look back on it as an adult, is that it was written and illustrated by a a husband-wife team, and they're both marine biologists, and it's very realistic. It's a scientific book. It's it's text-heavy. It's got a lot of detailed drawings, but it's also very dramatic. It's about the vulnerability of this tiny little creature in this vast ocean where he's really everybody's lunch 
and he's defenseless. But it was a really powerful book to me. And one of the things I've realized in looking back at the fact that my mom read this to me when I was a little kid was that it is about vulnerability and it is about how, you know, defenseless we can be in the world. But when my mom read it to me, I was within the safe confines of sitting next to my mother. So it's a, a good reminder that we can take kids to adventurous, sometimes dangerous places when they're within the security of our home and with people who care about them. And that's one of the strengths, I think, of, of reading to your children is that you can take them to places that might be frightening on their own. And then when I was in, in high school, a friend of mine bought me another book by William Steig called CDB. And this is a children's picture book, but it's, it's a book where William Steig uses letters to make sentences phonetically. So it's a boy and a girl looking at a B, and the boy says CDB, and he's using the letters C, D, and B. <laughs> I was sitting there trying it's, to figure it's out not the a, huh? It's not a, a written sentence. It's completely letters. So at first glance, it looks like gibberish. I have this book memorized, and I have since I was 16 years old. CDB. And the boy's looking at the B, showing it to the girl, and the boy says, and these are all just letters, D B S A B Z B. The B is a busy B. O S N D is the girl's reply. So I memorized this book in high school, much to the annoyance of my teachers. Um, but I was just fascinated with it. And I think the reason I was fascinated with it is because as an artist, it made me realize that language can be manipulated. You can play with it, just like you can play with pictures. Just the same way that, you know, Charles Adams played with pictures to make cartoons, played with reality and bent it, William Steig was bending language to make amusing things. So I think that those are the sorts of things I saw as a kid that just fostered my creativity just enough to make me think that maybe there's something out there where I can do something like that. And then when I grew up and, you know, had a career and started to look at picture books, uh, I didn't have children, but I would buy picture books once in a while. And there were some pivotal ones that came along. Uh, the Stinky Cheese Man, a guy I worked with, brought this to me and said, Tom, you got to see this children's book. And it was just amazing. It broke so many rules and so many conventions that I thought, wow, this picture book thing is really pretty interesting. So over the years, I would just see picture books that really stood out, and I knew that there was something going on there. Now, at the time, I was working in advertising. I managed to use my creativity and find a you know gainful employment in advertising, which is fabulous, because I got to use my creativity and use words and pictures to tell stories, and I got to be around a lot of other creative people, and it's just a lot of fun. I also kind of had my eye on, on picture books, and then... About 20, 18 years ago, no, 20 years ago, uh, I had a nephew who loved pirates, and he wrote me a letter one day, and he knew I liked to draw pictures. He said, Uncle Tom, would you draw me a picture of a pirate? So this is when I lived in Minnesota, and it was in the winter, so it was very cold, and I couldn't go outside. So I sat down <laughs> one Saturday morning, it was freezing out, and I started to write and draw some things about pirates for my nephew. And I, at first, I just drew a picture of a pirate, and then I drew a shark, and then I drew a ship, and I started to write some things about the pirates and the sharks and the ships around the pictures. I started to scribble nonsense about pirates. And pretty soon, I had about 20 pages of silly pictures and made-up <laughs> nonsense about pirates for my nephew. So I colored it, and I bound it, and I burned the edges to make it look like a real pirate book, and I sent it to my nephew. And a lot of people said I should try to get it published as a, a real picture book for kids. So I tried for three years, sent copies of this pirate book to publishers, and I got a lot of really nice rejection letters. In fact, I've saved them because now those publishers are some people I work with. They were really considerate and thoughtful. For the most part, the letters said the book was too sophisticated for you know, six-year-olds, because I was just talking to one kid. And I think what I learned from this, and I always try to remember, is when I'm creating a book... It's just me talking to one kid. You know, it's an intimate conversation. All I was trying to do is make my nephew laugh. That's all I was trying to do. To this day, that's all I'm trying to do is reach one kid and, you know, engage them, entertain them, give them some insight, provoke them, really, into something. But I learned that from, from doing this book for my nephew. And, that, and then after three years of, of trying uh, to get it published, Simon & Schuster finally agreed to publish it. And I did a series with them. And then for the next... 10 years or so, I did books and kept my day job in advertising because books don't pay that well. And eventually, I decided I needed to 
you know, really go for it. And I had reached a kind of a plateau where I realized I had better capitalize on whatever momentum I have or it's going to go away. So I quit my job and now I do books full time. It's <laughs> a long story. It's all worked out. It was a great story. <laughs> yeah. You said that it took you about three years to get this published. And then you yeah. worked full time for 10 years while uh-huh. you were also doing picture books. So how did you... How did you keep up your momentum and how do you do that in a, in a creative endeavor when you don't know what's going to happen or if anything's really going to hit? I had the advantage of having a day job, so I knew I could buy groceries. So the publishing thing was just a little side thing that I was, there wasn't everything on the line for me. I could do it insofar as I had time to do it. And my job took a lot of time, but I still wanted to keep one foot in the books. I don't know. I, th- I think I learned a lot from working in advertising. And that, like, perseverance is one of the main things I learned. Because in advertising, your work is critiqued by a lot of people, some of whom don't know what they're talking about, but you have to be diplomatic and take their critique you know, into consideration and come back. You know, Quitting is not an option. You're paid to come up with another idea or massage your idea. And I think that that, that has served me well in publishing because you just have to keep coming back with something else or learn how to defend what you've done in a way that will persuade someone who thinks otherwise. The other thing that kept me going is that you know, on the scale of artistic achievement, children's picture books are way up here at the top where doing a 30-second commercial for a fast car is a little bit lower. So just the potential for achieving something that you know, has a more redeeming uh, value to it is pretty motivating. And reaching kids, I mean, ultimately, that's what I want to do here every day still. I want to connect with readers and bring them some insight or provoke them into thinking about something they hadn't thought about before and make them laugh. (laughs) So um, I want to talk about your creative process. Can you describe what you do when you first either come up with an idea for a story or you get handed a manuscript that might be something that you're going to draw? The simple one-word answer is drawing. I can do a book one of three ways. I can either write it and illustrate it myself. I can get a manuscript from a publisher and, and then illustrate it. Or I can team up with a writer and we create a book completely 50-50. Those are the three ways I work. So the first way, if, if I get a manuscript from a publisher... I can't remember if that was the first way or the second way. I think it was the second way. <laughs> anyway, one of those three ways is I get a manuscript. It just comes to me. I print it out. And on my initial reading, I start doodling in the margins. And if I have been inspired to do some pretty interesting doodles at that first reading, I know I'm interested in the book. And then I'll start to read it with more depth and do more doodles. And if I'm still interested, I will paginate it which means you take a manuscript and break it down into, into the 32-page picture book format. Now, that may sound kind of mechanical, but it's really a test for the rhythm of a story because 90% of picture books are 32 pages, and it takes a discipline to tell a story in that amount of time, and then there's another discipline to telling a story in the man- that amount of time and space and do it, doing it in a dynamic way you know, taking into consideration page turns and how much content goes on each page and where's the impact? Where do you slow it down and where do you speed it up? So I'll paginate a manuscript pretty early in the process to see if it holds up to that test because, you know, a typed manuscript on eight and a half album paper is a completely different thing than a 32-page picture book that's broken up into, you know, a bunch of panels. So it has to stand the test of that pagination process and that and that pagination process also has to get me excited like oh look what i can do here i can i can set up this this event or this joke and then turn the page and bam the the punchline hits you and then um i will study the ending usually the endings are the tough parts I will study whether or not the ending needs work or not. And usually when I take a manuscript that someone else has written, I'll ask if I can massage it a little bit or work with the author a little bit. Everyone's always open to that. That collaboration is one of my favorite parts of the job, is I get to get in there with somebody who's already got a really good idea and mix it up with them and send ideas back and forth, sketches, revised text, and really shape this thing as something that we both love. Yeah, I think that doesn't always happen in picture books. Either. It's unconventional. 
the way I work is unconventional. I think more and more people are doing it, but it's definitely unconventional. Traditionally, the publisher buys a manuscript, they hire an illustrator, the illustrator illustrates it, the author may never even see the illustrations until the book lands on their doorstep. But I just have never been able to work that way. And it's because of my experience in advertising where I've seen the power of collaboration and, and the enjoyment of that process. So I, I, want, I want to do more of that. Yeah, I think it's I think it's crazy. I think it's really sad when I hear those stories. They're just like, I don't know, I sold the book, and here right. it is. Yeah. Yay! You know? <laughs> and there is method to that madness. I mean, what the publishers will say is they want the illustrator's vision, and they don't want it to be tainted by what the author pre-visualized. And I, I get that. You know, I, I've done a couple of books where I haven't met the author, and it turned out to be you know, something different than the author visualized, but better. So I understand that completely. But uh, I think I work well enough with authors that they've all allowed me to do that. Okay, so that's how you work with a manuscript. So what about an idea? What, how do you start one of your own uh, When I start one of my own ideas, it starts with a picture. I have a, I have a wall in my studio with little doodles. And the story has to be more than just the doodle, but it's represented by a doodle. So I've got on my wall, I've got a picture of a snail at the end of a blade of grass. And and the weight of the snail is bending the grass. And the snail is peering outside, and he's saying, that looks interesting. And the story is going to be about how a snail's curiosity drives it all the way around the world. It's going to be something about the snail who runs around the world. And the idea is that... He's driven by curiosity, step by tiny step, and pretty soon he's made it all the way around the world. But it's represented by one little doodle. Um, So it will usually start with a little picture that represents a bigger idea. But it can start anywhere. I mean, I tell kids that you've got to have an idea radar. Your brain should be looking for things all the time, looking and listening. I have a book called I Wish You More that started when I saw a little girl who had her sweater misbuttoned. So she was just standing there, and her sweater was misbuttoned. It was the cutest thing in the world. And I went home, and I drew a picture of this little girl with her sweater misbuttoned, and it said, more buttons than holes. That was the caption I put on <laughs> more buttons than holes, because that's the way a kid might describe it. And I thought, well, maybe that could be a book. So I did a bunch of other drawings of more this than that through the eyes of a child. Like there's a picture of a little girl standing next to a pond full of ducks, and she's got a little bag that's got three crackers in it. And the caption is more crackers than more quackers than crackers. <laughs> so I did a whole bunch of those, and I called it a book and sent it to a publisher. And the publisher said, "Tom, these are really cute, but there's no big idea holding it all together. They're they're just clever clever wordplay. It's an observation, but it doesn't really have a big idea to it." So I called my friend Amy Rosenthal. I said, Amy, I've got this half-baked idea. Will you help me turn it into something? And over the course of a month or so, we just hammered away on it. And finally, somebody, not me, somebody said, (laughs) make it a wish for more of this than that. And once someone suggested that, it was either the editor or Amy, it had an emotional component. And it became, I wish you more. It started with a little girl with her sweater unbuttoned improperly so it can start anywhere i have a book i'm doing after the one that's on my drawing board that started i was driving down the street and i saw a little boy probably four years old standing on the curb and he was looking down the street the direction i was going and i looked down the street to see what he's looking at and there's a school bus coming and i thought oh he's waiting for his brother to come home because they're going to do all sorts of cool stuff when his brother comes home right so i came home and i wrote a book that's called when my brother comes home And it's about this boy waiting for his brother, and he's telling the reader all the cool, cool things they're going to do when the brother gets home. Then finally the brother does get home, and the big brother asks the little brother what he wants to do, and the little brother says, I don't know, nothing. (laughs) Because he's happy just to have his brother home. Clouded is about kind of finding your place in the world and accepting who you are. But how did that one start? I do a workshop with kids where um, I have two bags. One's a little piece of paper with characters. The other, just names of characters. You know, garbage collector, teacher, firefighter. The other is a bag with settings. So it'll be playground, grocery store, fire station. And they take one piece of paper from each and they have to write a story. So it might be a firefighter on the moon. Go write a story about that. 
So one little girl picked up Cloud was her character and on the roof was her setting. And I said, okay, you're going to write a story about a cloud on a roof. And she whined and fussed and couldn't do it. <laughs> and meanwhile, I'm standing over her shoulder, and I wrote a story about a cloud that is floating through the sky, and it's, it hits a roof, and this roof is tarry and sticky, so it gets stuck on the roof. So there's a cloud on the roof. So I drew up the whole book. I thought it was really funny and clever. And then I sent it to an editor, and she called me and said, Tom, this is really stupid, but <laughs> I love your little character. Little cloud, go write a proper story about this little cloud. So I did. I wrote a proper story about a cloud, but it happened because some little girl didn't like what she, her assignment. So it can be anything. Anything can start an idea. I just tell people to be aware of your surroundings and what might have potential and come up with lots of them. You know, I've got stacks and stacks of rough ideas. 90% of them stink. But I just hammer away on the ones that I think might have potential until they either submit or, you know, become hopeless. <laughs> That's one of the problems working with Jillian as a writer is you'll be having a conversation and she'll stop. And yeah. She'll go write something down. I'm like, did you seriously just write that in your idea book? <laughs> <laughs> you'll be thanked. You'll be thanked Darn in the acknowledgement. <laughs> right, right. steal your backstory. <laughs> that is one thing I said to one of my coworkers. I'm like, I'm stealing your backstory. You'll yeah. be thanked in the acknowledgements. <laughs> Um, so I, I think that's, um, interesting. What you said is that, you know, they get to the point that they either get submitted or they're done, right. you know, a project dies. And one of my professors used to tell us that art, it isn't completed, it's abandoned. Yeah. So do you have similar experiences? Absolutely. I think that's a brilliant quotation. <laughs> my art is never done. I'm, I only finally sent it to the publisher because I've run up against a deadline and my wife <laughs> tears it out of my hand and says, you're done. And there's a danger of overworking art. I'm guilty of that. There's another saying that says, quit before you're done, hmm. which just means don't work it to death. But yeah, you always, you always hold out the hope that it's going to be a little bit better than you've actually made it. So there's a lot of truth to that. So is there a point when you know when you're done or you just, when your wife makes uh, well, you Oh, I look at my calendar and if it says the book has to be shipped today, then I'm done. <laughs> no, there is. There, yeah, it's right, hopefully it's right before you start overworking it. And hopefully you can recognize that point. But what happens is you'll make a few, you know, it's, it's almost done. And then, you, and then you do, you put a mark somewhere, a piece of paint somewhere, and it looks good. It looks really good. And you think, oh, I'll do that elsewhere. I'll do that more, and it'll look even better. But it doesn't. You know, you just got lucky and put the highlight in the right place that one time. <laughs> so it's it's really hard to recognize that point. But to tell you the truth, I will do most of my illustrations more than once. So I'll I'll get the same illustration going on two or three pieces of paper, and I will simultaneously be working on all of them. And pretty soon, one of them will start to rise to the top as the better of the three. So I abandon the other two and just concentrate on that one. It's a pretty inefficient system. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I do the same thing with photography. Oh, sure. If you're photographing a yeah. subject, you look at it from different angles and right. lay them all out. And you start playing and talking. Right. And one will start to kind of come to the top of, yes, that right. says you don't, what I wanted to say, and I've captured the image I want. Right, you don't just take one picture. A right. musician doesn't play a track once. They play it, you know, 50 times and pick the best take. So that's yeah. what you do as an artist. Well, I think that revision process is, is one of the hardest things to yeah. come to terms with, I think. <laughs> For me, it's like that initial creation is the most exciting. It is. And then I'm like, oh, it I is. have to revise it? Yeah. It's done. Yeah. And, it's perfect the way it is. Right. And I think you you had said that a picture is perfect when it's in your head. Yes. And you start to fail the minute you start to draw it. Absolutely. So, <laughs> so how, do you, how do you work against that mindset? I have this little piece of paper over my drawing board that says, not starting equal failing. <laughs> because the perception is that you know, before I start, when it's just an idea in my head or when it's just a little sketch, it has the potential to be brilliant when it's done. And it's only when I start actually executing the final piece that the downward slide starts. But, you know, I can't make a living by conceptually doing books. I have to actually draw them and turn them in. So <laughs> <laughs> I always say that at work. I'm like, in my head, it's brilliant. In your head, it's in my brilliant. Head, amazing. <laughs> Why would you destroy it by starting to actually execute it? <laughs> is is there 
a work that you think has come closest to perfect or as perfect as as it has been in your head? Um, maybe a few. You know, when I get a finished book, when the first one copy lands on my doorstep, I go through it and critique it. And I'm pretty harsh on it. Most of it is not as good as I wanted it to be. I got one book, my book called Shark Versus Train, I did it with Chris Barton. I'll never forget, I got that, the final, you know, printed book. They send you one right off, hot off the press, and I opened it on the kitchen table, and my wife was standing there, and I said, I don't understand this book. No, who's going to buy this book? It's insane. <laughs> this book is crazy. Nobody's going to buy this book. And it was very successful. But yeah, that, that moment I get the real thing, because because then... I'm really done. There's no more opportunity to tweak it or fix it. And it's kind of depressing. (laughs) (laughs) Up until that point, maybe I can make a desperate call to the publisher and say, well, can I change that one drawing a little bit? (laughs) But um, yeah, what I'll do is I go through my books a year later and I can look and be objective about it and say, well, that drawing's pretty good. That one's pretty good. And that one stinks and it's always stunk. But yeah, there are times when I look at the books and say, huh, who did that? That's kind of nice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that person's got some talent. <laughs> hey, go. wait a sec. Way to go, person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, well, I think there is like that, how did I do that kind of attitude that, I, that artists and writers sometimes have. Like when, when you go back, you're like, how did I make that happen? I don't know. <laughs> I think part of that is the fact that you're, you're, you can't replicate the motivation you had when you did it the first time. Like if if one of my books, you know, disappeared and got destroyed and they said, do you have to redo the art for that? I couldn't do it because you can't recreate that drive and that emotion that you put it into it the first time. Hmm. Why do you think creativity is so important for kids and for adults? Oh, it's, it's becoming more and more important as our jobs um, become threatened by artificial intelligence and automation. There was a chart in the New York Times a few weeks ago of different professions and which ones are most likely and less likely to be replaced by machines in the future. And it was the more creative jobs that were more secure. So I think job security, so far, you know, a machine hasn't been invented that can write and illustrate a children's book. But it's important in every walk of life. I have a slide in a presentation that I give to parents. I sometimes go to reading nights at schools, and I have a separate presentation for the parents. And um, I talk about the importance of creativity. And I have one slide that is an article from the Wall Street Journal I found about 10 years ago. And the article is not about creativity. It's about employee retention. So the headline says, how do the best companies retain their very best employees? And in the first paragraph, there's a line that says, when companies are trying to retain their most creative employees, blah, 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 blah. They used the term creative employees. They did not say the most prolific employees. They did not say the most profitable employees. They did not say the smartest employees. They said the most creative. And that tells us a lot that the Wall Street Journal, a business publication, defines excellent employees by their creativity. And that's becoming more and more important because, you know, knowledge is a commodity these days, right? It's in our hands. Skills can be learned. And taught for the most part, but creativity is so far is not a commodity, and so far it's something that you know is up to an individual's brain. So it really needs to be fostered for very practical reasons. So you talked about books that helped you foster your creativity. Were there any other role models? You know, I I had some good teachers. I just would find people who were doing things that overlapped with what I was interested in and mimic them. You know, when I started to work in advertising, I just tried to be around the best people possible. Uh, When I was in art school, I studied fine art. And I'll never forget the last day of of class. I was in a printmaking class. And the professor went around the room and asked everybody what they were going to do with their fine art degree. And I kind of sheepishly said, well, I'm going to go into advertising. And my professor said, well, Tom, if you're going to do that, make sure you do it better than anyone else. That's what I aspired to do. You know, he, he basically was saying, if you're going to compromise your artistic talent, Make sure you do a good job of it. Do it well. Yeah. Um, But I'm pretty sure that I was one of the few people who had gainful employment within three months of graduating from art school. I don't know. (laughs) Even when I was in advertising, I would try, I'd worked really hard to get around people who were good at it and 
do as well as them. And one of my rules for creative people, and whether it's in advertising or book illustration, or whatever, is don't look at junk. Don't look at bad books. Just you don't have time for them. They'll just sully your 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 brain. Look at look at the things that you aspire to. Look at the things that you you know, scratch your head and say, how did that person do that? That's, you know, listen to the best music, read the best books, look at the very best art. Not that you're trying to mimic it, but it's, it's telling you what's possible. Saying, here are some benchmarks, and maybe you can start to do even, you know, one fraction as good as the best work did, whether it's in any, any field. And that can motivate you. I'm a big believer in studying other people's art. I'm a big believer in going to the museum with a sketch pad and drawing paintings because you learn so much about the decisions that the artist made as you're mimicking their work. So I do that, and then I've even drawn out other people's books. There's a book called Clever Jack Takes the Cake, and it's it's a fabulous book in every aspect. It's a classic fairy tale told in a modern way. The page design and illustrations are fabulous, and I admired it to the point where I decided one day I'm going to draw that book. I'm going to redraw what the illustrator drew, not to steal anything or try to pretend I'm that artist, but to learn what decisions the artist made. And with my hand, you know, make the same similar motions that the other artist made as he was sketching out that book. So I sketched out the whole thing and put it on my wall and, and just studied it. And you learn a lot from doing that. I want to talk about the idea of constraints, and that's an interesting concept that I think that you've talked about before, is how artists need constraints to actually do their best work. You know, there's a perception that artists need a blank canvas and all the freedom in the world, and all the paints and colors and crayons in the world and, and complete freedom. And I just don't think that's true. I think that what artists need is constraints so they can see how deep they can go into that area. I call it making a very small box and then seeing how deeply you can go into that box. And then what that does for the viewer or the reader is it gives the reader context. Right off the bat, in either a piece of art or a book, the reader knows what the context is that you're working in, and then you take them on a journey within that context that's further and deeper than they ever thought you could go with that. A couple of examples of favorites of mine are, um, I tend to collect books that, that no one else <laughs> buys, um, but there's a book called The Hole. It's a Scandinavian book, and this is a book that literally has a hole drilled in the middle of it. And I just love this book. So imagine a hardcover book and taking a quarter-inch drill and drilling a hole right through the middle of it. Now, there's a constraint because every page in the book has a hole in it, and you have to incorporate that hole into the story. Now, this book happens to be about a man who um, moves into an apartment, and there's a hole in his apartment, and he doesn't like the hole in his apartment, so he puts it in a box and takes it to a laboratory <laughs> um, where they're going to study this hole. It's a great book. I mean, I think the message from the book is that you have to accept imperfection. If there's a hole in your apartment, just deal with it because it's not going away. But anyway, <laughs> the, it's relevant to our discussion because that's quite a constraint to have a hole drilled in the middle of your book. Um, so I've done a, a book with constraints. I did a book with Amy Krause Rosenthal called Duck Rabbit. And this is a book based on a single optical illusion of a character that looks like it could either be a duck or a rabbit. When Amy proposed that we do this book based on a doodle that I did, I said, Amy, that's impossible because I can't invent 30 more of those optical illusions. And she said, no, Tom, it's going to be the same drawing on every page with slight variations. And it is. If you look at Duck Rabbit, it's the same black and white drawing of a duck rabbit on every single page. So the, the challenge for us was just to see how deeply we, we could go and how long we could sustain interest in what is basically one drawing throughout the book. And it worked. And it's, it's just a fabulous exercise to um, limit yourself and see how, how deep into that world you can go. It's kind of like taking away all your tools. You know, if, if I'm doing a workshop with kids and they're having a hard time, I'll say, okay, we're only going to draw with red crayons. Take away all the other colors. We're only drawing with red. Let's see what we could draw. You know, how many things in the world are red? We're just going to draw red things. And all of a sudden, they've got focus and context and they can go into it. So Duck Rabbit is one of my all-time favorites. And I was first introduced to it in Rhonda's class for visual literacy, talking about perception and, you know, the way we can 
each interpret the right. same thing differently. Right. Yeah. Well, it came. It came from somewhere deep. I learned about it in a in a philosophy class in college, and it was actually invented by a, a German philosopher who drew the original duck rabbit. So, I pretty much stole it <laughs> with Amy turned into a book. And you have some other things in your pile. Um, Oh, Amy and I did another book called Exclamation Mark, talking about limitations. So this is a book that stars a piece of punctuation. We knew when we did the book that all it would be is black and white line drawings of exclamation marks and other kinds of punctuation. So I drew it on children's lettering paper, kind of like grade school uh, perfunctory uh, paper, and then I just drew it with a black, you know, black ink and a brush, and um, it's just question marks, exclamation marks, and periods. And that's it. Uh, and we managed to tell an entire story with it. So it's just another example of how you know, limitations can force you to tell a very imaginative story. I also admire books that are limited in other ways. There's a book called A Day a Dog that is just a series of black and white drawings. There's no color in it. It tells a beautiful story of an abandoned dog. Uh, it's it's very sketchy and it never leaves this world of of this dog and the dog's adventure and the entire book is black and white and it's wordless and it tells a beautiful story just with these simple visuals. This is a book called Hey Boy. It's a pretty new book and it, this is a, a very new team. There's a page in here that just knocks me out. One morning a boy met a dog. What's happening there? <laughs> He's dropping dog food. He's dropping dog <laughs> food. The boy did not a meet dog. a dog. The boy <laughs> lured a dog. <laughs> so when the writer wrote that, the writer had no idea the story had that potential. And I just think that's brilliant. So it tells you a lot about the boy right off the bat. You know the boy's motivation. You know his personality. You know, he's, you know he wants a dog. You know that he's willing to go out and get dog food. And what did you say? Entice? Lure. Lure a dog into his snare. And that's not in the text, you know, but it's a very powerful image. And I think this speaks very strongly to that idea of when illustrator and writers collaborate. Right. The way the story evolves and how in anything when we collaborate, we're building off of each other's exactly. ideas. Exactly. And you know something and think of it one way. Right. I know something and think of it another way. And together we make something even more amazing. Yeah. And that's what I love doing. I think that's my job is to take the author's words and add to them, sometimes replace them with a visual. So one of the first things I'll do with a manuscript is I'll get rid of what I call stage direction. If it says the little girl fell down the hill, I can get rid of that. I can show the little girl falling down the hill. So I, I kind of make the story more efficient by telling some things visually, and then I make the story more meaningful by adding meaning to the words with visuals. And I think having that collaboration is great. Once I got comfortable working with Kevin Krull, my illustrator, I would put in another color things that I knew he was Uh going to cut out. I was like, I know you don't need this, but here's here's this. I know it's going to end up on the floor. And it but it was really freeing for me as someone who doesn't like to revise too, to be like, (laughs) I can cut all of that (laughs) (laughs) because he's got this great picture. And when you have that level of trust, you can just kind of let it let it go. Let the words go. Well, and I think that um, your book, uh, Stick and Stone, Mm -hmm. was a really great example of this entirely new story being told Mm -hmm. that makes it so much deeper and so much more interesting yeah and that's my job is to take that story and give it dimension and depth Mm -hmm. and and to do it in an unexpected way what advice do you have for teachers or parents who see their kids that maybe daydreamers or maybe mm. doodlers or maybe haven't found a way to connect with things that you know traditionally might be seen as important? Boy, that's a tough one. I'm sure professionals and educators have <laughs> discovered some, some ways to tap into that. Um, you guys were earlier talking about note-taking and using visuals for notes, which is something that I do instinctively and have always done, but I didn't know it was okay to do that. I have a friend who's an artist who told me that she used to be scolded in class because when the teacher looked at her notes, they were mostly drawings. And the teacher told her that she couldn't do that. She had to take her notes written, not drawn. So I I think just the recognition that everyone's brain works differently, everyone learns differently, and 
to be watchful and mindful of people who are visual learners and then encourage and, you know, shore up that skill for learning visually, they will probably learn more, at least as much, if you encourage them to do it their own way. The other thing I would say for older kids, there's this myth of the starving artist that artistic talent is a nice novelty, but what do you do for a living? There are lots and lots of ways for creative people to earn a living. And because of my my work in advertising, I intersected with a lot of people in other creative fields, photographers, filmmakers, musicians, all those things. There's all sorts of ways that talented people manage to make a living and pay the rent by using their talent. They're not all fine artists, but they're definitely using creativity. And I tell kids that um, they shouldn't presume that they have to find something more conventional. It's It's a little harder for artists sometimes. You know, because the path isn't as laid out. You know, if you want to be an engineer, what do you do? Oh, you go to Purdue and you get a degree in engineering, then you work for an engineering firm. If you want to be an artist, you know, there are certainly art schools and there are some set career paths, but I do think that artists have to find their own way a little bit more. And maybe that's a test of their mettle. You know, if you manage to find a way as an artist, then you are you're qualified to be an artist because you found a way <laughs> to do it. You just heard our interview with Tom Lichtenheld recorded on location in his studio. Not that we're bragging about it, but we were there. (laughs) Just hanging out in his studio. Eating cookies. Eating cookies. It was awesome. Yeah. Check out our show notes to find a complete list of the books that he referenced and see some images from the books and the interview. So I come back to our title for the show, Doodlers and Daydreamers. I think it's very easy for us as teachers or for us as parents to see people who are doodling or kind of looking out the window as kids who are just screwing around. Like, hey, hey, pay attention. Write your notes. You can't take good notes unless you're writing your notes. That's right. Stop this drawing. (laughs) You'll never amount to anything in this world if you keep doodling. Um, <laughs> but I, I think that careers like Tom's and other illustrators and storytellers definitely show us that that's not the case, that there is something to be said that minds work in different ways. And if we can harness that creative energy that the doodlers and the daydreamers have, then we can really start to build something. And it might be a picture book, or it might turn out to be a building. They might become the next great innovator if we can give them that space and that motivation to achieve the things that they want to. I think it's important for us as educators to realize that creating visuals, illustrations, any kind of visual art is not just a hobby that for few of us to enjoy. It can actually be a valuable career path. Uh, We can encourage our creative students to embrace their creativity. Right. And I think we can encourage our students who might not be as creative to try new things, to maybe take notes in different ways or, or try to draw their ideas, because so much of what we need to do is interconnected. You can't just be a scientist. You have to tell people about your science. You have to be able to explain it. You can't just to be a writer. You have to have something to write about. You have to have the context and you have to communicate clearly something that is interesting. And communicate it in whatever way works. Hopefully we've done that today (laughs) on the STEM Read Podcast. If you like the STEM Read Podcast, leave a review on iTunes or connect with us on Twitter. Support for the STEM Read Podcast comes from Northern Illinois University. Your future, our focus. The STEM Read Podcast is produced in collaboration with WNIJ. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.